0: Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, looking at verses 5 through 8. The subject, of course, is prayer. What Jesus had to say about prayer. Matthew chapter 6, again, a series of looking at the Sermon on the Mount on how to live your life according to Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they would be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Of course, the verses in chapter 6, the first eight verses, have to do with hypocrisy. The first four verses, if you may remember, had to do with our giving. And, of course, our Lord is encouraging us to give, but, of course, his concern in those first four verses had to do with your motive. Why do you give? Do you give just to impress other people so that they can applaud you and your sacrifice and giving to the poor? So he says give, but don't give in order to impress other people. That would be hypocrisy. Christ is interested in not only what you give, but why you give it and the way that you give it. Today, we're going to be looking at prayer. And again, of course, we know that our Lord prayed and He encourages us to pray. He expects us to pray. But there's also a concern about the motive, the reason why you pray. Do you pray in order to communicate with God, to have fellowship with the Lord, to commune with Him? Or do you pray in order to impress other people? If you pray in order to impress other people, whether it be your family or friends in a gathering, then your motive is all wrong and you're a hypocrite for doing it in that manner. As a pastor, I have not found very many Christians who sincerely love to pray. Prayer is hard work. And most studies indicate that the average Christian prays very little, very little. The hypocrites in our Lord's day, however, love to pray. You'll notice in verse five, it says, when you pray, you're to not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray. And they love to pray, he said, in the synagogues and on the street corners. So they love to pray. And we see in this verse, again, that Christ denounced their public prayer and because they wanted, according to verse five, to be seen by men. Now the Bible nor Jesus forbids public prayer. Jesus prayed in public. On John chapter six and verse 11, he fed the 5,000, you remember, with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. But the scripture says before he did so, he gave thanks and then had the bread and the fish distributed to those who were seated. So before 5,000 people, our Lord expressed a public prayer. In John chapter 11, which accounts for us, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Again, Jesus has the people, the disciples, to take him out to where Lazarus was buried. Uh, In front of everybody, our Lord raised his eyes to heaven and addressed the Father by saying, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So our Lord prayed publicly. Not only did our Lord, but the apostle Paul also prayed publicly. In the 27th chapter of the book of Acts, he's in a ship or on a ship. He's on his way to Rome. He is a prisoner. He has... A Roman citizen, he's made an appeal to the Caesar to have his case presented to him. Uh, so he's on his way. and they're in the middle of a storm. And in the middle of this storm, the ship is in danger of sinking. The the ship crew is about to jump overboard and, and just end it all. But Paul stands up and gives a prayer. In Acts chapter 27 and verse 35, having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And he broke it, gave it to them, and beginning to eat. Now that wasn't the Lord's Supper that they were observing. They had not eaten in several days because they were still fighting for survival, trying to keep the boat afloat. The Lord had appeared to Paul and assured him that they would all arrive on shore safely. The ship would sink, but they would live. So in a calm spirit, in the middle of a storm, he stands up in front of all of the ship's crew and he thanks God before them for the bread that he's about to give them. Jesus, therefore, does not condemn the use of public prayer, only the misuse of public prayer. And as I said, the hypocrites in verse 5 love to stand up in the synagogues and pray before the people to impress them. Or they'd go out to a busy street corner where there were a lot of people and they would pray out loud. You know, sometimes we watch the Muslims as they pray three, at least three times a day Uh, Well, the Jews also had a, a system by which they would pray at certain times of the day. And whenever that time came, whatever they were doing or wherever they were, it did not matter. They stopped and they prayed. Now the question that Jesus might arise was Did you work out your schedule so that you make sure that you happen to be standing at the right place at the right time where the most people were so that you could impress all of these people how religious you were and how fervent you were in your prayers if that's the reason why he says you're being a hypocrite. Notice in verses 5, 6, and 7 three times our Lord said when you pray... When you pray, verse 5, he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. Verse 6, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Verse 7, and when you are praying, he says. So our Lord did not say, if you pray. He said, when you pray. He expects you as a child of God, a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to spend time with him in prayer. Doing so then, in these few verses of Scripture, there are seven characteristics that Jesus presents about private prayer. So I want us to take these seven as we work our ways through how Jesus would have us to live in this matter of prayer. The first word, of course, is relationship. Relationship. Notice in verses 6 and in verse 8, he says, Pray to your Father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. And then in verse eight, he repeats it, your father knows what you need. So those two words repeated three three times, your father, your father, your father, that speaks of a personal relationship with you and God. Before we can approach God, before we can gain an audience with the Lord, and be in a position to present our request before the Lord, we need to be a part of the family of God. Notice he says, your father. We must know God as our heavenly father. In the uh, model prayer, Lord willing, we'll look at it next week, but if you'd skip down to verse nine, in response to a question that they might would have asked him, how do we pray? In verse nine, he says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. So how do we enter a relationship with God whereby we might be able to call him Father? How do you become a child of God? And of course, the answer is by being born again, by being saved, of experiencing salvation, of repenting of your sins and trusting the Lord. Keep your place here at Matthew chapter 6. But open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you would, look at verses 12 and 13. John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13. John 1 12 says, But as many as received him, well, who's the hymn? The hymn is Jesus in the context of this verse and of this chapter. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he is saying, but as many as received him, the Jesus, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. And to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in verse 13, he tells us that when we become a children of God, we're not born that way. You're you're not automatically a Christian because you perhaps were born into a, a, a Christian home. Your mom and dad may be Christians or may have been Christians or your grandparents may have been Christians. But just because you were born into a Christian home and family doesn't mean that you're gonna automatically be a Christian. So you did not become a Christian by being physically born into a Christian family. Notice also in verse 13, he says, uh, not of blood, that is a blood relationship, an aunt an uncle, a mother or dad, a brother or sister. It wasn't anything at all to do with your physical family, nor of the will of the flesh. Your mom and dad might pray and wish and desire for you to be a Christian, but it was not of their will, uh, or it wasn't by of the flesh, that were you by you earned your way into heaven or earned and deserved Because of what you did in the flesh, you didn't work for your salvation. Paul tells us that it is all of grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you uh, earned your salvation by doing certain things, then you'd be tempted to brag about, oh, look what I did in order to get saved. So it had nothing at all to do with your flesh or your family relationship. Then how did you get saved? He tells you in verse 13, it was of the will of God. It was God's will for you to be saved. And so Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for my sins and when we repent of our sins, we become a child of God. And as a child of God, you can go to the heavenly father and address him as such. You may recall over in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul even goes a step farther and gives us a personal intimate uh, term in order to address the Father and it is the Greek word or the Hebrew word Abba. He said whereby you can call God Abba. Uh, Now to transliterate that into modern terminology it would be reverently referring to God as your daddy. It's, It's a term that a child, a baby would use in reference to the father. Daddy, daddy, And not in disrespectful way, it's not a comical thing to do to address God. But if you are on intimate terms with the Father, then you can affectionately and reverently refer to Him in an intimate way as your dad. God is your dad. He is your father. And you can address Him as such in a reverent way. And when you spend time with your spiritual father, the indications of that is going to be your countenance will change. There will be something different about you, about the expression on your face, about your attitude, about your behavior. Think about Moses for a moment. Moses, according to the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus, went up into the mountain to commune with God and to receive the Ten Commandments. He was there for 40 days. When he came down from the mountain, his face, we are told, radiated and glowed from having been in the presence of the Lord. When Joshua and others saw him, they were afraid. They, they didn't want to get up close to Moses because they were afraid. I mean, I mean, he, he, it just glowed from him from being in the presence of the Lord. And we're told in the Bible that so that he could communicate with people, he put a veil over his face. Uh, but uh, being with the Lord, when you, when you communicate with God, there's going to be evidence of that in your life. I've been around a few people who have spent enough time in the Lord. They didn't brag about it, didn't talk about it at all. But you could just detect there's something different about their appearance, something different in their attitude, something different in their behavior, because they had spent time with the Heavenly Father. The same thing was true of Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 6 as uh, he is about to be stoned to death because of his preaching the gospel and because of his relationship to God as he was dying they looked upon him and said, look at his face. His face is, is that of an angel. He was just that close to God. And, and then you have Peter and, and, and John as, as they uh, are told not to, uh, not to preach the gospel and, and, and the people who were telling them and forbidding them to do that looked at Peter and John and they scratched their heads and they looked in amazement. They, they were uneducated men, undisciplined men and yet it was said of them, they detected that they had been with the Lord. They had been in communion with God because they could call God their father. William Barber uh, wrote a book entitled To Pray is to Live. And in that book, he writes this. Prayer is communion, not conversation. Praying means relationship, not remarks. Then he goes on to write about a lady who who was asked what she prayed for when she went to the Lord in prayer. And she responded, I don't ask God for anything. I've already passed those things. That that point in my prayer life, she said, I have learned to take the lid off of my soul. Now, what does all that mean? It just means that you're not afraid to just let God see on the inside of you, that you're not so holy and righteous, nor are you too sinful for God to look upon you. When we can address God as father, then it becomes easier for us to take the lid off of our souls and fellowship with God. The Bible says your father knows what you need before you ever ask it. And so praying is just sharing and communion with the father and it's a relationship, a relationship of a son or a daughter of God's talking with the father. Notice the second term, not only relationship, there's the word reverence, reverence. And, of course, we go to verse 9 for this word. In verse 9, Jesus said, When you pray, pray in this manner, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed there means holy. He said, When you pray, pray our Father whose name is holy. You recognize that God is holy. The word hallowed not only can be translated holy but sanctified. You remember over in the, I believe it's the, what, the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah went to the temple, and he he caught a vision of the Lord. And he saw seraphim there, angels. And they, they were flying back and forth and all around the throne of the Lord. And as they did so, they would cry out, holy, 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 holy. The word holy can also be translated set apart or sanctified. That's what the word sanctified is. You are a saint. I am a saint. Paul was a saint. The word simply means to be set aside from the rest of the world. God is holy and he is set apart from everything else. There is no one like God the Father. He is holy and those angels could have just as well said, separated, separated, separated is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy and we are to respect and honor and esteem God for he is holy. Isaiah 57, 15 says, God is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, holy. And you remember when Moses stood before the burning bush, this is before the Lord called him to lead the people of Israel out of bondage. He was out keeping watch over his his flock. He, He was a shepherd and um, he saw in the distance a bush was burning. And he said to those who were with him, y'all stay here with the sheep. I'm gonna go see what that, uh, what's going on over there. There's a, a bush on fire and yet it's not being consumed. And then when he gets there and he stands before the burning bush, there's a voice that speaks to him. It's the voice of God. And the first thing that the Lord says to him is, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground on which you are standing is holy. It is holy. Wherever God is, that place is holy because God is holy and wherever God is, is a holy place. Then you remember uh, Daniel, another example of a person who recognized his own unworthiness in the sight of the Lord in Daniel 9.3, he said, I seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth and ashes. A way outwardly that he expresses his grief and sorrow over his sins as he communicates with a living God. You remember in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus used the boat that belonged to Peter to stand in as he preached to the multitude on the side of the of the Sea of Galilee. And when he finished, uh, he told uh, Peter to push out into the deep. And when he got out into the deep portion of the Sea of Galilee, he said, Let down your net. And Peter, being a professional fisherman, as well as Andrew and the others, said, Lord, we've been out here fishing all night. We haven't caught a single thing. Nevertheless, at your will, we'll let down the net. And when he did, the Lord told that school of fish, jump in that net. And those fish filled up that net. Got so many fish in that net, Peter couldn't pull the net into the boat by himself. He had to call for the other fishermen to come over there and help him. Realizing then that he had just witnessed and experienced a miracle. He fell at the feet of Jesus who was still in the boat with him and he said, depart from me, O God, for I am an unclean person. He recognized his own sinfulness and he recognized that he was standing in the presence of a holy individual. And that's the way we are to have an attitude such as that, that when we approach the throne of grace in prayer, that we are standing on holy ground because we are communicating with a God who loves us A God whom we can address as father, but nonetheless a God whom we should respect and revere and consider him to be holy of all things. So it's a relationship. It is a reverence thing that we ought to have. And then the third is a reality, a reality. We might also use the term be real. Be real. Don't be a phony when it comes to your praying. Don't try to impress God. You can't impress God, neither can I. You're not righteous enough, you're not holy enough. You don't meet the requirements. God is not impressed one iota with you or who you are or what you do, but he loves you, he cares for you. And so when you go to talk to him, just take off the facade, take off the mask, and just be yourself in the presence of the Lord and be real, God created you, he understands you better than you understand yourself. So in verse 5, listen to what the Lord says. You're not to be as the hypocrites. You remember the word hypocrite? It literally means two-faced. In other words, don't be one, one kind of person to one group of people and another kind of person with another group of people or one kind of person before all the multitude but then another person before God. It's an actor's terminology. In those days, you remember, I explained to you before, how one man or one woman might be the only person who is acting out a play, and they have to play different roles. So when they are playing one individual, they have a certain mask that they hold up in front of their face, and as they are playing that role, then they hold that mask up in front of their face. When they need to change characters and be a different character, they would lay that mask down, pick up another one, and so they would have another mask, and they would do that through the whole play. So the term two-faced, your face, but another one that you've put up in front of you. That's what the word hypocrite means. You're putting up a facade in front of yourself, pretending to be something to everybody else that in reality you are not. And so Jesus is saying when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites do. That's what they do. They stand out there in the synagogue in front of people and they put on a show and they go down to the main street corner where the two streets come together and they just impress other people and they put on a show. They're acting out for the purpose of impressing other people and Jesus is saying, don't you be that way. Don't be two-faced. Be real. Be genuine. For he says in verse five, they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. I discovered an interesting meaning or word here in verse five, The word for street. Didn't realize this before, but in the Greek language, there are two different words for street. You know, I think, well, street's a street. But in the Greek language, there's one word for street that just means a little narrow alley. Another word for street means a big, wide, broad street. And it is the second term that Jesus is using here when he says, boy, they love to stand at the street corners. They'd love to go down there where the street is real wide and broad. There are just a whole lot of people down there. They don't want to go down a dark alley where nobody can see them. They want to get out there in front of everybody, everybody, and put on a show as they pray. Again, take your Bibles, keep your place here, but turn to the Gospel of Luke this time. The 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke In the 18th chapter of Luke uh, and uh, verse verse 9, beginning with verse 9, Jesus tells uh, about a Pharisee and a publican who goes to the temple to pray. But what I'm only pointing out to you is in verses 9, 10, and 11. Luke chapter 18, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Now, now notice that word, trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, look at verse 11. The, The Pharisee stood and was praying to God. Oh, well, not really. Notice what it says in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Oh, to himself. Won't impress himself. And then he says that he prayed to himself and said, God, was he calling himself God? <laughs> I don't think so, but nonetheless, I found it interesting. Verse 9, he said, They trusted in themselves. The, the word trusted in themselves in verse 9 means they had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. They just thought everybody else just a scum of the earth. Not me. I'm a righteous person. But when he stood to pray, Jesus said he wasn't praying to God, although he addressed God in reality, he was praying to himself. And notice how he downgrades the the tax collector. And, of course, they hated tax collectors. Verse 11 says, as he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterous, And then looking over at the guy who was standing next to him, the tax collector, he said, I'm not even like this tax collector over here. He's part of the IRS. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says, be careful when you pray, be careful, be real, be genuine. When we pray, our prayers must be real. They must be real. Charles Spurgeon said, the prayer of the heart is the heart of prayer. Matthew 15, seven, eight, and nine says, Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. So it's a heart problem, a pride problem. So relationship, reverence, reality, be real. Now notice number four, and that is retreat, retreat. Going back to Matthew chapter six, look at verse six. Go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. Now, some translations use the term closet. Go to your closet and pray. Go to your closet. But that, that's, that's really not the term at all. It literally means your inner room. Your inner room. And even that, many people, and I tend to agree, I didn't really realize this until I started studying it again. They didn't have closets in their houses in those days. Now the the king might would have, or the real real wealthy person might because they could afford to have a bigger house. But the average person of that day lived in a one room house. I mean the kitchen, the living room, the bedroom were all in one room. They didn't have a a closet to put their clothes in. They didn't probably have any, only clothes they had was what they had on probably. And so they didn't have a closet, they didn't have a, a separate room for a kitchen or for a dining room. It was just one room. And so some translate this literally to mean that your dwelling place. And what he's saying is when you go to pray, don't stand out there on the street corner and don't just go to the synagogue and do this. Go to your house. And when you get there, it's the only room you've got. Close the door behind you and just shut the whole world out. And there in your one-room shack, in this one-room building that you call your house, your home, and there's nobody else there, maybe the wife or the kids are outdoors going to shop it or play it or whatever else. Just there, you close the door and in private, just between you and God, you pray and just, just pour your heart out to God. Just lift off the, the lid of your, house, uh, your heart and your mind and, and just, just let God speak to you and be in communion with him. Oswald Chambers, many of you read his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, said this about what Jesus was talking about. This is what Oswald Chambers wrote. Find an inner room in which you can pray when no one even knows you're praying. Shut the door and talk to God in secret. Have no motivation other than to know your Father who is in heaven. It is impossible to carry on your life as a disciple without definite times of secret prayer. You cannot be, you cannot be a good disciple of Jesus Christ if you don't spend time in prayer. And you've got to go somewhere private. When I was growing up in my hometown of Pittsburgh, our high school principal was O.S. Acker. He was a fine gentleman, served in the Navy during World War II. He was the principal of our high school Member of the same church that I went to, he was a deacon. I never will forget. He said, "My private place of prayer is my barn." He said, "Every day when I go down to feed the horses or feed the cows, I spend some time there and among the hay bales. I just take some time. Nobody else is around, and I just pray to God." It made an impression on my heart and on my life. I still remember that to this day. A fine Christian man. So it's not necessarily a closet. If you, you, you go to a closet to pray, that's okay if you're not claustrophobic, <laughs> you know? So, so just, just it, the meaning of it is, just find a place of privacy. Nothing wrong with public prayer, nothing wrong with having a prayer partner, but there ought to be some time when there's nobody but you and God, that's all. Just in private prayer, You talk to the Lord and your father who sees, look at verse six, your father who sees what is done in secret. Did you know, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this, you can tell God anything that's on your heart. You can't surprise God. Uh, You can't tell him something that he doesn't already know. And while you and I may be hesitant to confess To somebody, because I don't want him to know, I don't want her to know what I've been doing. You can tell God. Can you keep a secret? I can. It's the people I tell that can't. (laughs) But did you know you can tell God a secret? You can tell God anything that you want to tell God. You, you can share with God anything you've done that you would be embarrassed for everybody else to know. God already knows it anyway. He's not going to hold it against you and he's not going to tell somebody else. You can have confidence. You can trust God to keep a secret. And if you'll just pour, you take the lid off of your house, off of your heart and just just talk to God. You'll never call upon the God and and, and get a busy signal. You know, God is great and mighty. And and I don't know how he does it, but he can can hear everybody praying at the same time. I don't know how many people are here this morning, but if all of us were to just stop suddenly and start saying a prayer to God, God could hear every one of us as though we were the only one he was talking to or that you and I were talking to. How does God do that? I don't know. He's just God. And he can hear everybody praying at the same time simultaneously. And and he can keep a secret. And so retreat from the world. Get in that private place somewhere. And just you and God and fellowship with him, commune with him, talk to him, confess whatever sins you need to confess to and go away relieved and refreshed and renewed and with great joy with the God, the Father. So retreat. Number seven, Repetition. Reputation. Now in verse seven, Jesus said, do not use meaningless reputation. And uh, the word meaningless here means vain or empty. Uh, it means uh, speaking without thinking. Uh, so the Lord willing, uh, when, if we're allowed to live long enough and, and get next week into the Lord's prayer, uh, back in the medieval days, um, the, the priest would, would, of course, read Latin. The, the Bible was printed in Latin and they spoke Latin when it came to do the uh, mass and, and other things. Uh, there, there is a, a, a Latin word that, that gave rise to the English word pater, P-A-T-T-E-R, pater. Write it down, look it up in the dictionary, pater, Patter. The word "patter" in the Latin language, it, it's an abbreviation of paternoster, paternoster and paternoster means our father our father and according to webster's new collegiate dictionary the word means empty chatter empty chatter it means uh, it just means talking without really meaning it just means just chatter you're just talking it doesn't not make any sense what you say you you know some people just love to talk you just have to hold up time out a minute let me say something would you And so Pater Noster, they they would say Pater Noster, our father, so fast that it sounded like they were saying patter, 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 patter. Just repeating words that mean nothing, that just mean nothing. And too often, sacred phrases become Christian bywords used in mechanical fashion. The Lord's name may be taken in vain more in church than in any other place. Do you know that? It can. God wants us to be genuine in our prayer. Now, an example of this, and I, I, I may get into trouble here, but but take your Bibles and turn to First Kings eighteen, the book of First Kings, chapter eighteen. First Kings chapter eighteen is the showdown between God and the and and. Uh, the pagan god Baal. Old Elijah gets them on Mount Carmel, and he challenges them. He says, "Let's just have a showdown to see whose God is real God." And he says, uh, you, there, "Here are two bulls, and uh, uh, you you select one. You got 450 prophets here, and and so you, you you get your men together, and you take select one of these bulls, and and uh, build an altar, and uh, and uh, build a, burn it." sacrifice it and then you call upon your God and when you get through, I'll do the same thing. I'll take the other bull and I'll build an altar and I'll call my God and whichever God answers by sending a fire and consuming the altar and the sacrifice that's on it, he'll be the real God. So here are these uh, prophets of Baal and, and Jezebel and they put their altar up and they take the bull and they sacrifice it and they put it on there and... Then they start dancing around and they're calling on their God. Oh, Baal, answer our prayer. Send fire and consume this sacrifice. But they don't get an answer. (laughs) If you would look at it in 1 Kings chapter 18, skip down to verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first for you. Or many and call on the name, verse 26. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But notice in verse 26, but there was no voice and no one answered And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice. They cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood just gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Imagine that, (laughs) nothing. And I'll tell you, here's where I get in trouble. And I'll probably, my wife will work me over on this one when I get home, I guess. Look at verse 27. It came about at that time, Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside. That expression gone aside. Now, if you have the King James Version, now, this is scriptural, okay? If you have the King James Version, it's the word pursuing. Maybe he's pursuing. The new King James says he's meditating. That is, your false god is meditating. The new living translation says he's relieving himself. And the living Bible says he's sitting on the toilet. That's what Elijah says. That's literal Hebrew, folks. Watch all the teenagers now when they get home. They're gonna look, look this up. That's what, that's what Elijah is saying to him in verse 27. Call out with a loud voice for he is a God. Either he is occupied or he's sitting on the toilet. He doesn't have time to listen to you. He's meditating. <laughs> that's what it says. He's mocking them. Chatter, chatter, chatter. Doesn't mean a thing. But then Elijah calls upon his God not only does he build an altar and lay the calf on it or the bull, he has water poured all over it. He doesn't chatter. He just looks to God and says, send fire. And God consumes it. So just a lot of patter, just a lot of nonsense. <laughs> but I read a story about a little, a little boy and a girl decided they'd have a prayer meeting. And the little brother prayed first. When he finished, his young sister prayed and just quoted the letters of the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, X, Y, and Z. In Jesus' name, amen. And the brother argued, you didn't pray. She said, I did too. I guess if I can tell Jesus the letters, he can make up the mind, what a mind I'm trying to say to him. <laughs> the strength of the prayer is what counts, not the length You don't have to pray a long prayer. Just be genuine and tell him what's on your heart. Number six, reliance, reliance. Verse eight, for your father knows what you need before you ask him, before you ask him. Someone has said nothing lies outside the reach of prayer except that which is outside the will of God. I think that's why I and a lot of other people, when we pray, we say, God, if it is your will. Nothing is out of the reach of prayer except that which is out of the will of God. So just because the Bible says you can ask God whatever and he'll answer, doesn't mean you're going to get a Cadillac if you pray for it. It's got to be within the will of God. You've got to, in your relationship with God, in your communion with God, you've got to die to self and you've got to lay self and selfish desires over to one side and be dead to that and be dead to yourself and don't pray for yourself or to yourself. You pray to God and ask for his will to be done. His will is good and perfect as according to Romans chapter 12. And and then in Romans 8, all things work together for good to them that love God. God has promised to supply all of our needs, not all of our wants. Philippians four nineteen, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, we can have confidence that when we ask anything according to his will, he hears and answers it. In 1 John five fourteen, the Bible says, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the word hear there means to hear and and give a response to it. So we must pray with faith and confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers without faith. It is impossible to please God. Number seven, and this is the last one, and that is reward. First, relationship. Secondly, reverence. Third, reality or be real. Fourth, retreat. Five, reputation. Six, reliance upon God. And number seven, reward. Verse 6 says, your father who sees in secret will repay you. Again, the Greek word for inner room refers to a storeroom. Some people say that doesn't just mean your, your living quarters. It means your storage room, the smokehouse or whatever where you keep all your supplies And he says the inner room there refers to God's supply house. He's got everything there. Somebody said they had a dream when they went to heaven and and they they were seeing a a room there where it had all of these blessings in it and, and it was just packed full of blessings and the question was asked, Lord, why are there so many blessings there? And he said, because nobody ever claimed them. Nobody ever claimed them. They're just there unused. So... Most Jewish dwellings, as I said, didn't have but one room and they went there and they prayed and God who sees in secret will reward you. Now, he doesn't say what the reward is. But I've never gotten anything from God that I was disappointed with. Have you? Why no. God doesn't give you toys. He doesn't give you cheap things. Everything that God gives you is genuine and real and lasting. Prayer is not so much seeking to get something from God as seeking to be with him. Just be with him. Just be with him. Andrew Murray said this, dwell much in the inner chamber with the door shut. Shut in from men, shut up with God. It is there that the Father is waiting for you. It is there that Jesus will teach you how to pray. To be alone in secret with the Father. This ought to be your highest joy. Your highest joy. Just to be with the Father. I want to close by asking you two questions. Number one, go back to the very first thing that I said, and that is, in order to call God father, you've got to be His son or got to be his child. Most of you I know today, you know the Lord is your savior. You are a child of God. But I don't know, there may be someone here today who's never been saved. You're not a child of God. Oh, you may, you may be religious. You may go through the you know, actions of it but I'm talking about do you have, do you know God in a personal way? Can you not only call him God, can you call him Father? Can you call him Abba, Daddy, in a reverent, respectful manner? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If not, very simply, you, 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 you've got to be willing to admit that you are a sinner, You take away the facade. Get get rid of that hypocritical mask and be real with God and admit to God and say to him, God, I, I agree with you. I am a sinner. I don't measure up to your perfection, to your holiness. I am an ungodly person. You may be the most religious person in the world, but there's a difference between being religious and being godly. Not in the New Testament terminology. So admit that you've sinned. And admit that you can't do anything about it. You can't save yourself. There's no such thing as a self-made individual. I don't care what the person might say. If they're successful, it's because they stepped on somebody getting there or or God blessed them in an unusual way. So there's nothing you can do or be to meet the righteous requirements of Almighty God. It's got to be a transplant where the Holy Spirit Takes the righteousness of Jesus and he transplants it into your life. And when Jesus looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So it's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And I get it when I pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart. Oh God, cleanse me and forgive me. I accept you as my savior. Have you done that? The second thing that I want to say to you is this. And that is as a Christian, are you harboring unconfessed sin in your life? Because the Bible says that if I, Harbor sin in my life uh, if I regard, I think the, the the word in the King James and others says, if I regard sin. I had to look up the word regard to see exactly what it meant. And, and the meaning of it is when you regard sin in your life, is that you want it there. You, you may give everything else over to the Lord, but there's just this one little sin that's in your heart and you, you keep it there. It, it's back in the dark corners of your heart somewhere. And every once in a while you pull it out and you pet it and you pamper it and you feed it and you enjoy it. And you stick it back in there. You never get rid of it. There's just some sin that you enjoy doing and you cling to it and you hold on to it. God, I give you everything else but this. Everything else but this. If you keep unconfessed sin in your life and you don't repent of it, oh, you'll, you'll, you won't lose your salvation, but you'll lose the joy of communing with God you're hamstringing the Lord of wanting to do in your life wonderful things and you'll miss out. You're gonna end up on the short end of the stick, as we say. And if you harbor sin, God cannot and God will not bless you and use you as he would like to. He can't. You've got to be obedient. You've got to be surrendered to the Lord. You've got to give him the keys to every single room in your life. Let's bow together. Holy Spirit of God, don't take my words, as you well know, they're just my words. But take your word. Take the words of this holy book. These words, Holy Spirit, that you inspired others to write. And recorded the words of, of our Savior. Who talked to us about being genuine in our prayers. To not be hypocritical. To not hold on to the ways of this world. But to come out from among the people of the world and the ways of the world and the philosophy of the world and be dead to self and not pray to self, but to pray to you. Oh God, there's nothing that we can keep hidden from you. You know everything that there is to know about us, you know the deepest, darkest secrets. And it's encouraging to know that when we come to you in private, And share with you, finally, those deep, dark secrets. We can do so with confidence, knowing that you're not going to betray confidentiality. And that what we say just between us and and you, and you'll cleanse and you'll wipe it away, and you'll give us a new clean heart and a new way to live, a a plan to follow and the power to, to be what you desire us to be, which is more like Jesus. And as we turn our attention now to the invitation, O Lord, may your will and way be done with every heart and life who's here. May no one leave this place today dissatisfied when they can come and drink of the fountain of living water and be satisfied forever. Be honored, Lord Jesus, in all that we do and say and during this time of invitation for your will to be done to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if the Lord is speaking to your heart, please come.